Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's interview is with Jay Couture, the Executive Director and CEO of the Seacoast Mental Health Center, a nonprofit community mental health center in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Jay received her master's degree from the Department of Health Management and Policy here at the University of New Hampshire. Jay knew early on that she wanted to work in the mental health field, but thought she would be a provider. In this podcast, we talk about Jay's 30 years in the mental health industry, working her way up from being a clerk to CEO, and her more than 20 years at Seacoast Mental Health. We also discuss the variety of services provided by a community mental health center, the wide variety of skill sets that are required to deliver those services, the challenges and opportunities facing mental health organizations today, and conclude with a discussion of the opportunities for the early careerist who might be interested in pursuing a career in mental health. The full-length podcast is approximately 78 minutes. An abridged version is also available that only focuses on Seacoast's organization and services. So welcome to The Forge, Jay. Thank you. So you're going to be the second University of New Hampshire alumnus that I'm interviewing. I just talked with Trisha Cummings last week. You are a, also a alumnus of our Master's in Healthcare Administration program from the Health Management and Policy Department where I teach, but your undergraduate degree was actually in Family and Consumer Studies. So why did you choose UNH, and what was it about family and consumer studies that made you choose that as a major? So I went to high school actually at St. Thomas Aquinas in Dover, New Hampshire, so, so just, just down, the down the street. And I think, although I applied to a number of schools throughout the mostly the Northeast region, a pretty large cohort of my classmates, we all made the same decision to stay local. My mom went to UNH as well, so there's family connection, and I think that it was known for providing a really great education. Yeah. And you chose um, Family and Consumer Studies. How did, that, how did I you make did. that decision? Uh, I was interested in the field of mental health and in the field of family studies. I uh, had become affiliated in, in some ways with the Cooperative Extension or became aware of the Cooperative Extension program and uh, was able to do an internship through Family and Consumer Studies at Cooperative okay. Extension. So, Okay, what is Cooperative Extension? That is a, um, they have regional uh, offices, so there's one that's connected to UNH. I worked with uh, a woman at the time, Claudia Boozer, who was doing something really innovative at that time in educating community members about blended families and starting okay. some new seminars. But they, it's a pretty broad-ranging organization, so 4-H is connected to it, so it, um, it has a, a pretty large spectrum. But at that time, the particular area that I was interested in was the family piece. Okay. And so you knew early on that you were interested in pursuing something in, in mental health. I did. I thought, though, that it would ultimately end up being more clinical okay. in nature. Okay. And I think that um, sometimes your career path takes you in different directions. 
Okay. So not long after you graduated, you were working at Stratford Guidance Center in Dover, which again is not far from UNH. Uh, so tell us a bit about Stratford Guidance Center. What was its mission? What was it like when you were there? So Stratford Guidance Center was the community mental health center for Stratford County, New Hampshire. Um, I went there and took an entry-level administrative assistant position uh, with the idea that I would go on and get a graduate clinical degree. Um, and they provided, much like we do at the, my current center, services to a full spectrum, both age and acuity-wise, uh, for people with mental health issues. Okay. How large an organization uh, is it? And it, it currently no longer exists. Okay. It was right. taken over by um, the Developmental Services Agency of Stratford County. It's now a combined agency known as Community Partners. I see. Okay. Um, so in its day was probably a $5 million. At the time I was there, I'm sure it grew after I left and then became part of this, um, okay. part of the its current entity. Okay. How did you wind up working at Stratford? I, right after college, I went actually to work for a family business uh, for about two years. I was working in um, office management and assisting uh, with a coal, timber, and natural gas okay. um, company. So a little ways away from A little health. ways away, a lot. You know, you do things for family. Yeah. Um, and well, this was your family. This business. is my family. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and then really wanted to come back and um, get back on track and look to getting a master's degree. Right. Uh, and like I said, that the entry level position was open. My thought was that uh, because they had indicated there were some training dollars available, uh, that that might help me to get on that path towards a clinical role. What I learned after I started is the training dollars were available at the rate of $125 a year. Uh, okay, so that even, even back then, that even wouldn't back really cover. Even back then, it wouldn't really cover the cost. But it ended up working out because I think that I'm a better match for the administrative path that okay. I ended so up you, on. So you sp spent several years there. Um, ultimately, by 1991, you were the business manager. Mm -hmm. what, what was your path like moving up through, the, through that? So fairly quickly, I went there. I had the administrative um, assistant position, an office manager position opened up in their Rochester office. Um, and I, I think because of my short tenure, I wasn't immediately selected, you know, much to my surprise at that young age. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but then ultimately through a lengthy interviewing process, they gave me a chance to do that. And I think okay. that I did well there. Yes. And then was asked to come back to take over the billing office. They had had a person who had left and um, were really in need of someone who had good organizational skills. It wasn't, that wasn't anything. Healthcare billing was not something that I had experience in. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that uh, my mentor at the time, uh, Joanne Dodge, who uh, was just a wonderful support for me while I was at Stratford Guidance Center, thought that I could learn it and that I could do it. Um, and it turned out she was right. Yeah. Um, and so was able gradually to take on more responsibilities beyond, I still had responsibility for the billing office staff, but um, I think that title change came as a result of just some of the branching out and being okay. more active. So you moved up to be a supervisor. Um, I did. 
Yes, and, yeah. And, and, and so what were you in charge of? It was billing and... So the billing office and really trying to work with some of the... Uh, I didn't supervise the clinical department directors, but really tried to collaborate with them okay. in making sure that we had systems in place to capture all of the billing and to capture it in a timely manner. The centers used to be paid predominantly through general fund grant dollars. So the centers would get a check once a month, about one-twelfth of this contract with the state. But at about the time that I was joining Stratford and through my tenure there, that was shifting so that more of the revenue, the state was using the grant dollars as federal matching dollars for Medicaid. So we had to get better at billing. We had to get better at documenting so that then you could keep the money, <laughs> not have to send it back. And so that's where my role tended to expand. Okay. So in 1993, you left the Stratford Guidance Center and came here and joined the Seacoast Mental Health Center, where you are the executive director and CEO today. Correct. So what, do you, what did you learn? What, what were the kind of some of the important lessons you learned early in your career prior to coming over to Seacoast? I, I think that you always have to be willing to push yourself a little bit farther than you think you can go, that it's okay to not know what you're doing as long as you're willing to take the time to figure it out and seek out support yeah. um, to do that. That you have to be willing to work hard if you're going to move ahead. It's not just whatever the set work week is. That it's, Sometimes it's more than that, and you have to be willing to do that. Okay. So with your management experience at Stratford, you almost certainly could have made the jump over to, say, a, a hospital or a larger medical clinic. You, but you already knew you kind of wanted to do mental health. And so your experience at Stratford reaffirmed that, I'm assuming. Uh, and you had said you were interested in doing a clinical job, but you took a job here at Seacoast, uh, again, doing administration. When did you decide, um, you know, administration is the, the, the way I want to go? I don't know that there's any one moment where I can say, oh, this is it. But I think for me, it was a recognition over time that that's the better match. That's the best way that with my skill set, I could support clinical staff in an organization and helping them meet their mission and provide important quality care. Okay. I'm still really passionate about the need to have access to services. And so this is a way that I think I can help facilitate that. All right. So before we talk a little more about your personal progression, let's talk a little bit about Portsmouth and the Seacoast area that you service. What's kind of unique about Portsmouth and what special challenges do you face as a result of being here in this part of the state? And this is such a beautiful and fortunate part of the state. We have the beaches. We have a really vibrant um, arts community. We have, I think, a, a challenge in that people sometimes assume because we are perceived as a wealthy area of the state, that we don't have pockets of need, that we may not have the same issues, both with financial issues and poverty, but also with mental health issues, and none of that is true. We have a fairly large subsidized housing community here in Portsmouth. We have one of the largest, if not the largest, homeless shelters here in Portsmouth, and oh. uh, my agency serves the whole eastern half of Rockingham County, so we also have some areas of our region that are more rural and have more an increased prevalence of poverty and of other challenging issues. But the issue of mental health and mental illness itself, that knows no socioeconomic bounds. So whether you come from a wealthy family or an indigent family, it, that doesn't matter because a biologically based disease is not going to 
look at your checkbook before right. it determines whether or not right. you're going to be. So Seacoast Mental Health Center is a community mental health center. What does that mean? Is there, is there a special meaning to that? There is. So huh. we are one of 10 state-designated community mental health centers, which means that we have gone through an approval process to be the provider in a geographic area. Um, and like I mentioned, for us, it's the eastern half of Rockingham County to provide services to um, residents who meet a state level, both diagnostically and in terms of functional impairment. So that there are services that many of our population require that you can't get at a private practice office. We tend to see the cases, the complex cases that a private practitioner does not tend to keep in their practice. So people who need a lot of community-based support, so they're, they're served in a team modality, so they may have a psychiatrist, a nurse, a therapist, and then community-based staff who can help them with case management needs, so making sure that they have access to health benefits and housing and heating assistance, all the sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, okay. so that they're, if their basic needs are met, then perhaps they're better able to be treatment ready. And that, I think, is it's different than in other practices where most of the services would be office-based. So you, do you actually employ here case managers and, and people who would do some of these other community-based services? We do. We have, we call them outreach specialists, but they are case managers. They are people who provide a service called functional support services that helps people manage their symptoms in the community so that they can be successful in the community. Okay. We have employment specialists who provide services to help people either enter or re-enter the workforce. Are these people typically clinicians or are they social workers? So we have a mix. We have, okay. we have physicians, we have nurse practitioners, we have psychologists, we have both licensed and yet to be licensed master's level staff. We have bachelor's level staff, so bachelor's okay. of social work, bachelor's of psychology, sociology. You could have someone who's working in some of our positions that would be from health management and policy. Okay. So I was thinking of the community based folks because you're so of course you have providers but you also had you were referring to people like who would assist with uh, housing or things like that so, so those would, tend to be bachelor's level staff who have okay. psychology sociology those okay. kind of backgrounds per state rule okay yeah. right. so it's, it's a pretty diverse mix yeah. from a credential perspective yeah. and i think that that's one of the things that makes us different than other mental health private practices in the area. That's interesting. So I, I so a, a private practice would not have the full scope, right? They would address maybe the disease specifically. Right. Rather than being able to uh, have the I mean it's really just right an ability to have that breadth of scope in in providers. We as a designated community mental health center are mandated to do a lot of things that no private provider, particularly for profit, would choose to do because it's often not compensated. <laughs> now, now, okay, so does the state then provide you specific compensation for these other services in addition not to Not all of them, no. Sometimes, and in some cases, we do get some, currently get some funds to support emergency services for people who have no insurance, less than we used to. But there are a number of things. If we have somebody who is mandated to have services, so you could have someone who is involuntarily admitted to the hospital to protect either themselves or others, and they get what's called a conditional discharge, which is a legal 
status, they have to receive treatment in order to stay out of the hospital, and we have to provide the treatment even if we don't get paid in order for them to because stay of out of the hospital as because a, of our status as a community yes. mental health center. Right. Okay. So that's part of the reason why we do things, and and I think also having we have about 160, 165 staff. So we have always somebody who's on duty, and even within um, the treatment teams, there's a lot of support. So people don't have to be alone with the case. If there's a really complex case, they can consult with each other, either with peers of their same prudential level, or physicians often consult with the outreach staff about what they're seeing when they're out in the consumer's home to try to help and enlighten the treatment. So you, you talked about some of the, you, you kind of mentioned some of the providers that, that you employ. So maybe we could talk about that for a second. You said you have everything from physicians, so psychiatrists, I'm assuming. Yes. Do you have non-mental non health physicians as well, or is that a We thing do you not okay. yet. But some, you know, it, it, as we look at the increasing practice of integrated care, that certainly would be something that we would seek probably in the next three to five years to explore. What we've been doing is we're integrating staff into primary care. Okay. But it would be, I think, a, a positive thing for some of our consumers who are more comfortable coming here if we can then integrate in So, the so other you're saying you're well. integrating some of your staff into primary care in, offices correct. elsewhere? Yes. Okay. So. so we have therapists who are co located at each of the community health centers in our region. So that's Families First and Lamprey Health. We also have children's therapists at Core Physicians in the pediatric practice in Epping. And we, are, we have a nurse practitioner who is two days a week at Families First. That's relatively new. She just joined us this summer and are recruiting for a nurse practitioner to be two days a week at Crossroads House, the homeless shelter. Okay. And you said nurse practitioner. So is that a, a, a nurse practitioner with a special specialization in mental health? Yes. Interesting. Okay. I'm familiar with nurse practitioners doing kind of primary care work. I, mm -hmm. I didn't realize that they were able to do or have specializations in mental health. Yes, they do, which is, I think, very helpful in terms of the staffing shortages. There are not enough psychiatrists to meet the need nationwide. Okay. Um, and as a community mental health center, we often pay less okay. than, say, a hospital would or a private practice could generate. So that augments the number of prescribers that we can have on staff. Um, so you bring up an important point that I think maybe a, a lot of people outside the mental health field don't really realize is what are the differences between the licenses for providers? So for example, psychiatrist versus psychologist versus nurse practitioner, licensed social work. Or maybe you could talk to kind of those So a psychiatrist levels. or a nurse practitioner can prescribe. Okay. But in a community mental health environment, and I say that because it's different than in other environments, only a psychiatrist can sign a treatment plan. Okay. What does that mean? That means that there's a formulation of what services a particular client would benefit from, and it gets laid out with goals and objectives in a very structured format. It has to be reviewed at least every 90 days by the psychiatrist. We're working really hard to change that because we think that it doesn't make sense for it to be limited only to a psychiatrist. What I tend to tell the, our delegation, because I talk to them all the time, it's a CMS, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services rule, is that a nurse practitioner can prescribe medication that could kill someone, you hope it won't, <laughs> but they cannot sign a treatment plan that authorizes someone to get talk therapy. 
And that does, to me, okay. doesn't make sense, and it's not a good use of resources. So we're taking our most expensive, most limited resource and using it in an ineffective way. Meaning the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist. So what's the difference, very quickly, what's the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist? A psychiatrist is a medical doctor. Okay, so they get So they that. are a physician who then does their um, specialty training, their residency in psychiatry. Okay. And some of them go on for additional training and specialty in either child psychiatry or geriatrics, so different areas of specialty. A psychologist is not a physician, but a doctoral level. They can be in psychology and education, but you have PhDs and PsyDs and EDDs, <laughs> lots of different credentials. But they can do, they do therapy, but they also can do testing which can be a really valuable tool in helping if there's some question or concern about a diagnosis for a client that some of the testing that's available can help to resolve questions in that area. And, and what, what do you mean by testing? Are we talking? So different psychological testing, so um, Myers-Briggs testing, uh, with theirs, we have a relatively new psychologist who has joined us who has a specialty in testing kids to see where they are on the autism spectrum. Okay. So there are a number of different tools that can be used to help identify. So, but a psych psychological test is typically not, you're not going to draw blood necessarily. You are not right? going to draw so blood. What we're talking you're about is an interview kind an of thing An interview, paper, um, test. paper uh, a lot of it is computerized okay. at this point. Sure. Yes. I'm showing so, my age by saying paper, but right. <laughs> We're not that many years removed from paper. And, and even when you're electronic, you still have paper. Sure. Okay. Uh, right. The drawing of blood, our nurses do some injections. We have nurses on staff as well, okay. but the so, psychologists do not. Okay. So, so we have psychiatrists who are physicians who then go on to do a, a residency in psychiatry. We have, you have psychologists who are four-year trained PhD types, mm -hmm. or, or there's a few others that are EDD or other yep. related fields. You have, we've talked about nurse practitioners that have a uh, specialty in, in mental health. What, el what else? So we have what nurses. We have three nurses on staff who help clients with getting their med boxes, their med planners for the week ready, do injections, and support some of the other services in the psychiatry department. We have many different credential types for master's level therapists. So you have licensed clinical social workers, people who have who got their uh, master's in social work and then went on to get to take the exam and do the interview to be uh, able to practice independently. We have um, marriage and family therapists. We have um, people who are who have an, a master's in arts or a master's in science that could be in counseling or psychology and then went on. M most of those staff then take a community mental health licensed clinical mental health exam. Different or different variations of the acronym. Uh, so that they can practice independently, although more limited. The, the one with the broadest acceptance by insurance for independence is the MSW, a licensed okay. independent clinical social worker can bill Medicare, whereas okay. none of the others can do that independently. We hire a lot of master's level staff and bachelors right out of school because they can't practice independently, but they can work here under the umbrella and the supervision of so many other staff that it provides an opportunity for them to get a great postgraduate 
education. And what kind of work would they be doing? So, 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 the, so like for example, the social workers, some of the other master's level providers that you talked about, they're doing talk so therapy. So they can still do therapy oh. services, but they do it with, and a supervisor signs off on it. They don't have to be present in the room, okay. but they're um, getting a level of supervision that's commensurate with their experience level okay. to make this sure is the bachelor's that level people. Uh, the master's level oh, when, master's as well. when a master's level therapist graduates they're not yet prepared to practice independently and so okay. the general um, requirement for the board of registration is that they have two years of supervised services and those have to be documented and they have to have a single generally a single although they're staff turnover does allow for different supervisors to come in, but there's a continuity of supervision that's afforded to them, uh, specifically around preparing them for licensure. And that generally takes about two years for them to be ready uh, to, to sit for the exam and have, okay. the, have enough clinical hours. So you graduate from a, say, a master's in social work program, mm -hmm. and then you come, you're not yet licensed, or is that a different? Right, you are not yet licensed. You're not licensed, you're not eligible to be licensed for about two years. Okay. You need to get a thousand clinical hours, uh, a thousand hours of supervision, I think, is the level. Wow, okay. And then you, so, so you have master's level staff who are helping with therapies and so forth. You said you have bachelor's level staff. What kind of work would they do? So the bachelor's level staff are going to do, uh, provide a service called functional support services, uh, which they're not therapy, but they're therapeutic. So they're gonna help people manage their symptoms when they're out in the community. They're gonna help them uh, with questions about following instructions for their medications. Uh, we have some people who need to have reinforcement. So we actually have people who will go for some of our clients out to see them sometimes twice a day to make sure that they took their medications. They're gonna help them, as I mentioned earlier, with access to, to the benefits that they're eligible for, whether that's Medicaid or Medicare, housing benefits, heat assistance. We're working now with some of our families for that need help with getting clothes for their kids for school. So it's a pretty broad range. So they do functional support services and then those other services that help with daily living and housing and things are case management services. Okay. And the bachelor's level staff tend to be the primary providers of that. Some of our master's level staff will do that if it makes sense for the family to have a single provider. Okay. And so you're trying to extend basically using less costly you want uh, to uh, you want to use providers. each credential to the maximum level of their scope of service that they're allowed to do so the if if a bachelor's level staff person can do it that's generally the preference from a, a cost perspective and that tends to make more sense because they can then be out they are out in the community they're actually we have staff who are co-located throughout the community in our children's department we're in many of the schools in our area as well as in the primary care practices that i mentioned earlier i think that for us we try to make sure that services are available where it makes the most sense for the consumer and their family okay talking about the the, uh, the services broadly that you that you offer I saw you, you offer a, adult services what would that consist of broadly so for depends on the um, diagnosis and functional impairment you could have someone who is seen by our emergency services because they're in crisis they may have one visit they may have um, up to five visits in an emergency situation uh, we have then different eligibility statuses for people. So depending on where they are slotted clinically, 
you have people who don't meet the state eligibility, but they still need services, that they have symptoms that are interfering with their daily lives. So they may have sessions for six months to a year and work on, they've got, it could be an anxiety or an adjustment disorder. We've worked with grief counseling for uh, elders who've lost spouse. Um, we have a prevention program for elders as well, so people who don't necessarily need to enter treatment but need some additional supports in helping them to manage some of the changes related to aging. Then you have people who meet the criteria, who are adults who are designated as being severely mentally ill or severely and persistently mentally ill. And as you move up in those clinical designations, they get a broader scope of services. So those are the people who are likely seeing a psychiatrist or a nurse practitioner. So we tend now to refer to them generically as seeing a prescriber. Okay, yeah, yeah that makes sense. <laughs> uh, they uh, likely got a therapist assigned and a case manager assigned. We also have a team for adults that specializes in the most ill. It's called an assertive community treatment team. They, uh, we have staff on seven days a week and they are on from eight in the morning until eight at night uh, throughout those seven days so that they can really provide the most supports. These are people who tend to have frequent hospitalizations or interactions with law enforcement if they're not being supported in a way that helps them to do other so this is a real, I mean, this is a, if you can maintain that level of care, you can prevent uh, hospitalization, which would be much more costly than, right. than, than getting outpatient treatment, or you could prevent a potential law enforcement issue, right. which again is less more. costly in kind of a social way. Correct. Uh, so we partner with Portsmouth District Court and in Hampton and Exeter we have mental health courts. So people who are involved with, uh, with the justice system, but it's really clear that it's related to their mental illness, we can work with, through the courts to have them diverted into treatment rather than incarceration. Uh, how, how does that flow work? So, so someone gets picked up somewhere in, in Portsmouth. How do they then identify this person should go to uh, I mental health court? It took us a number of years in just planning and working together to figure out how we would do that. So we have a case manager if they think at the court that someone might be eligible or that they already know that they're connected to us. We have a okay. case manager who will go and do an assessment and it, it's voluntary so clients can certainly choose not to participate in it. They can uh, choose not to be routed into the mental, mental health, health system. They sure can, okay. which is an important piece as far as their civil liberties. Uh, but if they do choose to be part of it, then there's a very supportive structure so that there are regular meetings that happen between the treatment team and the court and the clients go to court on a fairly regular basis just to check in. And here in Portsmouth, Judge Gardner has been wonderful um, about that. So there's one judge in Portsmouth? Who is the uh, primary person who does this. We also do the clinical services for the Rockingham County Drug Court. Um, okay. So that's a post-conviction treatment. They're out on parole while they're doing that and Judge Wagling. So it's similar. Um, the sanctions are a little stiffer on that side but it's at okay. the Superior Court level. Yeah. But it also, it offers people an alternative to get treatment for either their mental health issues or their addiction issues rather than be incarcerated. And that's a much more effective and productive use of the state's resources and the local resources.
That sounds very reasonable. You have a, a service called Child Impact. What is, what is that? We do in the state of New Hampshire, if you have children under the age of 18, you cannot get divorced or revise a child um, custody agreement without having taken this course at one of the 10 mental health centers. So this really is an educational seminar that helps spouses at a really difficult time um, understand the impact of their behaviors or potential behaviors on their children and tries to provide them with some resources and tools to be more mindful of okay. how the dissolution of an adult relationship can impact the children in their lives. Okay, so it's a it's a course that you It's offer. a course. Okay, and then you, you offer child, adolescent, family services. So we have a really broad scope of services, uh, and like I said, we are in most of the schools in our region. Um, we're in one pediatrician's office, soon to be another one, I hope. Now, are these private pediatricians, or are these also, you mentioned So community? one is owned by CORE Physicians, which is Exeter okay, right. Hospital, right. and then the, the two others are the community health centers for our area, and the third one is a private. And are, you tre are, are the people you have placed in those uh, facilities, and I'm thinking certainly with the, the community clinics, those are already probably have a, the patients probably already have an overlap in terms of their eligibility. So core, is a, core is a part of a, of a system that is, it's nonprofit, but it's, but it's kind of a standard private practice. We actually, it, for the co-located positions that we have, for the most part, other than the nurse practitioner who's just started at, at Families First, they are master's level therapists and mostly in our, from our child and family services department. So it'll, it provides a, an access point for people that the pediatricians or primary care providers think could benefit from therapy but wouldn't come here. Okay. Um, so it, it makes it more convenient and more likely that they will follow through with care. For Exeter Hospital, and, and in the broader sense, we contract with them to provide all of their psychiatric services at the hospital. So oh, our okay. physicians do consultations on their inpatient units, and our uh, emergency services clinicians provide all of the mental health assessments in their emergency room. And in the last several years, because of the wait list for inpatient beds, for psychiatric inpatient beds in our state, the doctors will also do consults for people who are held for more than 24 hours in the emergency room if the emergency room doc requests now, it. That brings up a, a point I wanted to raise. You do not have inpatient capability here. No, we have one group home in Greenland that has eight beds that provides housing for people who are not currently able to live independently. And we have three condominiums in Portsmouth that provide housing to six clients, but we have no inpatient capacity. Okay, but these are, those people would have to be stable and... Right. To, when I think of an inpatient admission, I'm thinking of somebody who is probably in particular distress. Right. So you don't have that capability we do to not. offer. So you rely on the, on the local hospitals to provide that. Right, so for a voluntary admission, uh, Portsmouth Hospital has a behavioral health unit. Frisbee Hospital has a geropsychiatric unit. We refer to Anna Jakes in Massachusetts, Elliott Hospital. Elliott Hospital also has involuntary beds, but only eight. Portsmouth Hospital has just opened involuntary beds. These are for admissions where people are not choosing to go, but it's been determined and it becomes a legal status that we have a right to involuntarily admit them. And the only other place that is available in this region for, for those types of beds is New Hampshire Hospital in Concord. And for the past several years, there's been a wait list 
every day, every single day. So that's a challenge that you have. That's an incredible Trying to find a place to put somebody. Right. And if they need to be in an involuntary bed, you can't just say, oh, there's this other bed here because they're too ill to okay. be in a general population bed and they need the level of care that would be provided for them at a, at a designated receiving facility. That's probably one of the greatest sadnesses for me about our system that uh, we have families who literally suffer because their loved ones are stuck in an emergency room for days at a time. So, so if there is no involuntary bed available, someone winds up waiting in the emergency room because emergency. they're not safe to go home. So right. you can't release them. Um, sometimes, if they're there long enough and they get some level of treatment, the psychiatrist is rounding, you can stabilize someone and, and maybe they do ultimately go home instead of going to the hospital. But for many of them, most of them, they're waiting there for, could be a day. We, there, there are stories throughout the state where sometimes it's many, many days. Yeah, and based on my experience in emergency rooms, it's not a peaceful kind of stable place. It to is not the place that to right. collect yourself if you're and, if you're under stress. And it impacts other people who are there for completely different reasons because if the resources are diverted to managing someone who's having a psychotic episode, then that means maybe you are not getting your needs met while you're waiting there for a different reason. What's the main difference between adult services and child services? I mean, other than the fact that it's age. What, what's what's so the, different? The ages are different, and it's easier to be designated as eligible for community mental health services for kids. The kids age out of the system unless they have one of the more limited and more severe uh, diagnoses and would transfer to, to adult services. There are certain diagnoses that are covered in children's services, ADHD and spectrum disorder services that are not covered in the adult mental health system. Okay. So. I think those are probably the largest differences or the kind of diagnoses and the That's kind right. of interventions that you would then use. There are some things that, that are employed across all age ranges for different therapeutic services, but we have a team here, for example, that specializes in treating kids on the spectrum. So those staff have particular training in the picture exchange communication system for kids who have don't have verbal skills okay. and applied behavioral analysis to help both the clients and, more importantly, their families learn how to help manage behaviors. Okay. You have a program called CLAD, C-L-A-D. The Center for Learning and Attention Disorders. So those are um, psychologists. Uh, It was a private practice that we took over in 1994, so just a few years ago. And they are actually nationally known. So it's Dick Guare, Peg Dawson um, are the primary staff in that department who are national experts both in ADHD, in spectrum disorders, and really are able to provide a level of consultation to schools and to families and to our own staff that I don't think any other mental health center has in the state. At that level, we actually work with some of the other mental health centers. We were very fortunate to be able to bring them on board. And I think it's a, it's a wonderful resource and support for our staff. Excellent. One other program you have is, is REAP, R-E-A-P? So that's the um, Referral Education Assistance and Prevention Program for Elders. Okay. So this is a population that has many life changes that are happening. They also tend to be a population that doesn't like to ask for help. And 
might see it as threatening to come into the mental health system. I mean, anyone can see it as threatening to come into the sure. mental health system. Sure. Uh, so this is a program that started out of the New Hampshire Housing Authority and was limited just to those properties that were owned and managed by the New Hampshire Housing. And now it, it has expanded over time to be statewide and apply to elders and caregivers for elders to really provide supports and education. So they might do some education around why it's important to make sure your meds aren't accessible to your grandchildren or cautions about falls or cautions about mixing your different medications with your evening cocktail. Because there are just culturally things that have changed from when this population was in their young and middle age, and we used to have cocktail hours. <laughs> I don't remember my parents doing that. Right. Um, some of us might still. But uh, just really trying to provide education. And it then becomes a nice segue, if it is appropriate for additional services, that they've established a relationship, there's some trust, and it makes it easier to connect them with other things that can be helpful to them. I see. So let's talk a little more about your kind of your career here at Seacoast. You came here as the associate director in, in 1993. What were your responsibilities as the associate director? A lot. Um, <laughs> if it wasn't clinical, yeah. it fell under my purview. So okay. I was responsible for developing the budget, for supervising all of the non-clinical staff, so front desk staff, transcription staff, medical records staff, the facilities staff. So at that time, we only had one IT person. And well, in, in so, 93, there weren't that many computers probably that, either. That's right, that's right, <laughs> I yes. remember my first clinic about that time. So if it wasn't clinical, it was mine. Okay. How many folks was that about? Probably at that time, it was probably 25 okay. people. That's pretty significant. Um, it was, so, so given you were coming from Stratford. It was a big leap. Yeah. So you had been in charge of the billing and private. No, right. This is a big jump. I did not. I was not responsible for crafting an entire agency budget. Yeah. yeah. But I remember at the beginning, I said, it's important to do things that are a stretch. This was, it was definitely a stretch. And I... Learned a lot quickly. Yeah. Uh, how did you come to, 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 to get that job? I mean, like, like you said, it was a stretch. So somebody had some faith in you that you could do that. So I actually did not apply for that position. I was contacted by a third party. Okay. Um, this was back, so this will date me, before, well, before email and before, I had to go to a stationery store. I got a phone call. And I had to go to a stationery store in downtown Dover to get a fax of the job description <laughs> to look at it. Uh-huh. Uh, because the only fax machine at my former employer was in the executive director's office. Oh, and he probably didn't want to get a fax <laughs> right, from a, yeah, right. from a potential um, so, employer. <laughs> so there had been someone at the state who I guess was aware and thought that I might be someone who had potential, and that's how it started. I okay. So I think that... You know, networking when you can and, and making sure that people are aware of your skill levels or potential skill levels, because certainly, it, what, like I said, it wasn't something that I had applied for. I had, at the time that this happened, my grandmother had, was in the hospital and then ultimately passed. And so there were other things that I wouldn't have even thought about considering leaving. And I was not unhappy in my other role, but I, I did, I made the leap. 
Okay, so so you made it's a it's a big jump that you made at that time. You you oversaw fiscal and administrative functions. Um, you were coordinating with the with the state uh, uh, for your contract. I was yes, um, yeah. and so at in at that time the some of the people that I'd worked with in my former role I still had contact with. So there wasn't like it wasn't like transferring to a whole new universe. Some of the people were still okay. the same, okay. and that made it easier. I was still in a statewide group of the same peers. I was filling that role for um, my, not all the time, but at least part of the time in my prior center going to a statewide meeting of CFOs. So that helped even though I didn't have that role there. When I came to this center, I still had that group of peers that I could network with and say, how do you do this? (laughs) (laughs) And what does your center do when this happens? I also have, I like policy, I like Medicaid and administrative rules. It's not something a lot of people like, but I yeah. think that I learned to become the, a very proficient in understanding those, and that certainly helped me in my work. Okay. Toward the end of your period as the associate director, that's when you went back and got your master's in healthcare administration from health management policy, my department, uh, UNH. What made you decide that that was the time to do it, that you wanted to do an MHA rather than something else? I had a wonderful mentor here, uh, the executive director, my predecessor, Jeff Connor. He really encouraged me to do it. You can't be a CEO in the mental health system in the state of New Hampshire without at least having a master's degree. Oh, okay. So that was an incentive to do that. And... And the MHA really was more attractive to me. I looked at the executive MBA program as well, but knowing that I wasn't looking to change fields, I was looking to stay where I was when you look at the coursework that was required, that having it be something that really was going to be focused on healthcare, the MBA didn't have the healthcare focus track at that time, um, it was a really good fit. Okay. Um, and what I, did you gain from going through the program? Because your undergrad was, in a, in a very different field. You had a lot of practical experience at, by that mm-hmm. point. I think that in some ways it was validating for the practical experience. And I also remember thinking going back to school as someone who has work experience, I think you get a lot more out of the coursework. That said, I told my kids, just keep going. <laughs> because it's hard to balance sure, work and sure. life too. I continued yeah. to work full time and had a family at that point. But I'm still connected to one of my professors from that program. We interact, actually more than one, because I sit on an advisory council too, and to some of my classmates, that we still consult with each other and stay connected. That I think it really helps you to, to broaden your vision and use a new set of skills in your current work environment. Um, at the same time, I was also asked, he thought it would also, my mentor thought it would also be really helpful for me to uh, run the children's department, so I got some more clinical exposure. I was not relieved of the other duties, and I was in graduate school. I'm not quite sure how that <laughs> happened, but it did. And, and ultimately, I think it was really helpful for me, it, because when I took this role, it helped, even though I wasn't a clinician, it helped give me more credibility with the clinical staff that I had sort of lived that life for two years. So when you say you ran it, you were doing the administrative right. operations 
for the department and overseeing, supervising all of the um, clinical staff, not doing their clinical supervision Super. because I'm not credentialed to do that, but um, okay. really being more. But you were their boss. I was their you, boss. You could tell them what to do within outside of the clinical. Correct. Clinical treatment. Right. right? Yeah. Okay. Um, and that was really helpful for me. I think that one of the things that you learn is that no matter how long you've been at an organization, when you sit in a different chair, it's really a different perspective. And I have found that in all of my changes throughout between Stratford Guidance Center, which was the same kind of industry, to where I am now, that you learn a lot and uh, that you have to be ready that it's not going to be what you expect because the perspective is different depending on what seat you're in. Okay. So you you were the associate director through 2002. So for about nine years, you, you served in that role. Mm-hmm. And then you were wrapping up your MHA, I guess, and, and that's when you were offered the opportunity to take on the... So I graduated in May, and then we had September 11th. So my predecessor then after September 11th decided he was ready to move on okay. to something, and then um, ultimately I was selected. So I graduated in May and I, in the April of the following year. Wow. I, uh, so graduate May, you were then qualified to be because you needed your master's degree. And, and here I am. And wow. again, that was, I think, a leap for the board. I report directly to a volunteer board of directors that I didn't have a experience as a CEO. I wasn't a clinician, which my predecessor um, was. Oh. And, and yet they took a risk. And here I still am. And here you are. So obviously it's worked out okay. How did your role as the associate director prepare you for that, for that jump? Well, I think I knew a lot about the center operationally. So in the role of associate director, you're very internally focused on what's happening within the organization. So I was very well versed in how we operated and the things that we did. I think I had a pretty good sense of our strengths and weaknesses as an organization. And I think that helped me to be ready. Okay. But it doesn't make you 100% ready because again, it's really different. As the CEO, you have much more, not that you're not responsible for the internal, but you have much more of an external role as well. Okay. Um, What does that mean? Integrating into the community, partnering with other stakeholders and other providers. Um, That was certainly an area that I think was ripe for growth for us, and and we tried to do that. Being more um, visible at the state level. The community mental health centers for many, many years didn't have to advocate for themselves at the legislature because past commissioners had seen their role as advocating for the population that they were responsible for. And that relieved the centers, in a sense, at that time from having to go and testify at hearings and really do a lot of advocacy work. But that shifted as economics shifted and different commissioners came into the role. And um, right about the time that I was taking over, we really had to learn how to advocate and how to try to work with the legislature directly in a way that we hadn't before. And so that was a big change. So what would you say are are the primary kind of responsibilities of the CEO, executive director? I mean, ultimately, I think that you are responsible for assuring that your organization is sustainable in a way that allows it to meet its mission. So you need to be able to assure that you can provide the resources so that the staff who are actually doing the direct work have what they need to be successful in helping people reach their recovery goals. Okay. 
So you said a minute ago that depending on where you sit in the organization, you have a very different view. What surprised you most when you took on the CEO role and you took on, you know, got I, your new seat? What I think um, the first thing is that sense that when you're not the CEO, you always have someone that you can kick it up to, and suddenly everybody's looking at you like you're supposed to come with ready-made answers and know this. And you, you want to, you want to be perceived as a level of someone that has confidence. And so, balancing that out as you're learning, so that staff can still function and do what they and get their needs met. I think that was a. It takes, and it takes a while. I have told others who have ascended into this role internally from their own centers or moved from one center to another, probably two years before it's really your own. You come in and you're inheriting someone else's board, someone else's culture, even if you were part of it, someone else's management style, so people were used to, and my predecessor had been in the role for 20 years when he left. And so you need to take the time to help shift some things stay the same, the core mission is the same, but there are nuances and practices that are different and it takes a while for culture doesn't change overnight. So one of the th points that you, you made earlier was your, your predecessor was a provider and you are not. Uh, how has that affected, I mean, you had a, you, at least prior to coming uh, uh, to moving up as a CEO, you did have some experience as a, an administrative person overseeing providers. Is that attention? Um, uh, is there attention there that you're not a provider? How do you deal with that? I think um, possibly initially for the mm -hmm. when I first took the role, there might have been some people who questioned that, but I don't think that's an issue now. Uh, okay. We we operate so in a structure that does not have a chief operating officer. Some mental health centers have that between the CEO and the program directors. I choose not to. I have learned over the years from them. They've learned from me and I think that it, we have a great collaborative relationship and great respect for the skills that we each bring to the table. I am the CEO, but it does not in an authoritative and hierarchical way. I think it's important right. to recognize that you look better as a CEO and your organization is stronger if you surround yourself with really skilled, intelligent um, people. I want everyone who works for me to be smarter than I am because I think that ultimately serves the organization better. And my role is to really, again, help to create and foster an environment where they can be successful in their roles. Okay. If you could go back to 2002, uh, knowing what you know now, what would you tell yourself uh, as, as she was about to sit in the chair for the first time. Um, this is going to be really hard work. <laughs> People won't always like the decisions that you make, but it's going to be really gratifying. Okay, good. Uh, I'm gonna grab a couple of bullets off your CV and just kind of ask you about them a little bit. One of the, one of the things you said is, is um, or one of your functions is to provide executive leadership for a dynamic community mental health center. So how do you define good leadership? I think that you need to bring a passion for what you do, that you need to be open to listening and hearing what feedback you're getting, both from staff within the organization and from external stakeholders, so that you can really and truly to serve people in the best way. Can you give me a, an example of a difficult leadership lesson that you had to learn, maybe the hard way? And, and what did you learn from it and how you've you, you so many. <laughs> I think one of the things in the last several years that was really hard, and, and we've actually, we lost some staff over it, 
was the decision, even though we couldn't afford it, um, to move to an electronic health record. Okay. Um, which we needed to do. It's yeah. mandated, you know, number of That's years ago with a target yeah. date. Yeah. Um, and so the first difficult threshold was getting board approval to do something we couldn't afford and did that. But what I don't think I truly appreciated at the time was the impact that would have on staff, particularly staff who had been in the field for a long time. We did, our implementation I think was one of the best of the mental health centers in the state in that we had a, a group and we continue to have a group of mixed credentialed staff. It's not an IT project, it's a clinical project with IT support. Uh, that really looked at how the forms needed to look and how we were going to implement it. We didn't implement it in stages. But for some staff, I think that I didn't at the time fully appreciate that they would dislike this change so much that they would leave. And we had a long-term psychiatrist who chose to do that, which still saddens me now. And that's, I think, one of the losses. And yet you still have to press on because it's the right thing to do. And you can't take it personally because it's the right thing. You know it's ultimately the right thing and the better thing. And we're on the other side of that now. And to the point, not that people love it. You're never going to find particularly a prescriber that loves a medical record. They're going to tell you it takes, takes them more time and they hate having to enter things in reportable fields. But we get such better information, both from a management perspective. In real time, we can see, are we actually providing the services that we said we were going to provide or that we need to provide them? Did we document them correctly? But in clinical terms as well, because when I have a psychiatrist who's on call at two o'clock in the morning, they can open a chart and they can look at it. So we're on the other side, but it was really, um, there was a lot of pushback, a lot of pushback. And so that was definitely a learning experience. There are probably things I could have done better to help prepare, particularly the physicians. So my, what might you have done? What, in, in, in retrospect, if you had to do it over again or I something th- similar to it, what I would you do I think that um, I probably would have tried to have a broader range of physicians. We picked a physician champion who we thought would be the most difficult to accept the change, to be the representative. And I probably shouldn't have done just that. I should have probably, because he's the one who left. (laughs) I probably should have partnered that person with someone who I thought would truly embrace it and done more directly rather than counting on this person to be communicating back to the psychiatry team, done more to involve them. And we've done that since. We did have a, a, a physician champion who, and she got them to do a lot, and that was helpful for them okay. to have someone who was able to adopt it and then show them how it would benefit them. Okay. But that's probably something yeah. I definitely could have done better. What would you say one of your one of your um, most proud leadership moments? <sighs> I I think that when a clinical staff comes and shares a story of a really difficult case that they felt they had the support, and sometimes the cases don't end well, but even so that they come back and say, you know, I had such great support from you and from my clinical team, that those are the things that really touch me, um, or when family members come. It's more a sense of pride. From a personal, professional perspective, we are a center that has a 
historically struggled financially. Most of the mental health centers do. When I took over, we were not in strong financial shape. And I think with the help of everyone involved, both clinical and administrative, we have really turned that around and are a very solid and stable organization now. And I'm exceptionally proud of that because it makes it easier for the staff to do the work sure. um, without that pressure of people running around and yeah. saying, the as sky a, is falling. As a, as a former comptroller, I appreciate that. So. <laughs> What do you look for when you're hiring leaders? Because you're a leader of leaders now. So, so when you look to hire a subordinate leader, what are you looking for? What are the characteristics you're looking for? Whether that's a clinician or a, so or a administrator. Depending person. on the position, there are certainly specific skills that are unique to each position. But aside from that, assuming that whoever is going to pass a, an initial screening has the credentials and the skill set, uh, fit is really important. And passion for the populations that we see. Because you can be a clinician, you can be a therapist, or you can be a psychiatrist, but if you don't love to serve the most ill and most complex cases, um, you know, some of our adult cases we see for decades. These are people who have a lifelong chronic mental illness. You're not gonna be a good fit. I need someone who can tolerate the challenges of being a middle manager. That you have to be able to hear and support your staff, but still help them stay on track to meet the organization's goals. You mentioned your board and kind of structuring the board. What is the function of Seacoast's board? So they ultimately have fiduciary responsibility. They're okay. a, a group of volunteers. They're not compensated for their time, other than a sandwich and drinks at the, at the monthly board meeting. Uh, they. So I'm a direct report, as is the medical director. So they're responsible for assuring that we're meeting our fiduciary responsibilities. We have an annual audit that helps provide them some confidence that that's the case. They hire, like I said, myself and the medical director, and they also are great ambassadors in the community. So I use them to help with contacts with legislators, with other leaders in the community. My predecessor, there were believed that we were a healthcare organization, so there was no fundraising. That has changed, so we've been adding board members for whom that's not a foreign concept, and that's another slow change. People are giving of their time, they're giving of their money, uh, and it's more time, I think, now too, because we do a couple of events a year. So they, they are huge supporters and, uh, and a great resource for me. So I. If I have an issue that I'm struggling with, I, depending on what area of specialty the board members come from, lots of different backgrounds, I have people that I can call and get assistance from or say, you know, what do you think of this? I just, we are in the process of hiring a development director and I have um, one board member in particular who I thought would be really helpful to me in screening resumes and just bouncing off. I did first interviews and can you help me work through this? And so it's nice to have that available to you. Now, how does a person come to be on the Seacoast board? So there are a number of different avenues. It could be sometimes we have people who express interest. We've had that. Or they are connected to people who are currently on the board. Mm -hmm. um, so through people that they cross in business paths or personal paths. We have family members of consumers on the board. We have consumers who are on the board as well. They don't have to publicly self-identify. Mm -hmm. So there are a number of different avenues. And then the process, once we know that there's someone who may have an interest or who we might have an interest in engaging, 
is that they generally meet with myself, the board chair, and sometimes one or two other board members, just so we can talk about the center and what we expect of board members, and they can talk about sort of their interests in mental health, and we can determine whether or not it's a good fit. How many board members do you have? We can have up to 20. We currently, I believe, have 15. 16 tends to be about a normal number for us, but at some point we might get to 20. <laughs> okay. I want to ask you about mentorship. It's an, another thing you, you mention on your CV as a, as a function of the CEO is to mentor and support staff in achieving their potential. How do you go about mentoring your staff, and does Seacoast have a formal mentorship program? We do not have a formal mentorship program, but one of the things that I'm very proud of is we have a number of staff here who have grown in their career paths in the center. So like myself, you know, you come in at an entry level position, um, which I didn't necessarily do here, but within the field, and then you have opportunities to advance your skills and, um, and move forward. So I have my children's director was a therapist here and she worked as a team leader for our spectrum program and now she's the department director and is someone who I think has great potential to continue to grow even further in her career. The associate director was the accounting manager prior to this role. My human resources director, her first position here was as a case manager in the adult services department and then she um, came over to the administrative side as executive assistant and ultimately the HR director. Uh, and we have a number of clinical staff for whom that's true as well. Both of my children's team leaders were therapists here before they were managers. Okay. So those are things that with the right support and guidance and mentorship that people really can grow and expand their skill set. What does a good mentor do? I think tries to um, help guide people, help them see where opportunities exist, help them to, I know at least for me as a young manager, you tend to be much more black and white about things and it can be helpful to have someone help you reflect on some of those decisions you either might be considering or maybe already made, where you can learn from those and to talk those through about ways that you could have thought or can think or could have thought about how to handle something differently and then you can grow from that. And I think that they then, if you're in an environment where people can do that, that, the, that hopefully they're then in turn doing that with the staff that they supervise. Okay. And what, what is the organizational culture at Seacoast, if you were to describe it? I, I think that um, the staff here are very close to each other. The work can be very emotionally challenging at times. And so they know that they can get great support from their team members or from people in other departments, that people work really, really hard at what they do. And, and I hope they feel appreciated for that. I think making the time for that is sometimes challenging and you have to remember to do that, whether it's a note, an email, or quick passing. We just did Kona ice trucks. So small, they're small tokens, but I think that knowing that you're in a supportive environment makes it easier so to do the you work. So you do that as a, as a matter of practice, you try to be conscious to, to go out of your way to make right. recognitions. Right, so you know, if someone has something that's not a positive thing, that if there's a client loss, you know, I try to send a, a note just to let the person know that I'm aware and are they asking if they're getting the support that they need. Okay. I notice you're using the phrase customer and client and not patient. 
Right. Yes. And mental health. When we and over the years, I think because I've been around so long, when I talk about psychiatry, I probably would talk about patients in okay. psychiatry because the doctors still call them patients. But the language evolves over the years, and I think I morph into all different time frames of what. Who, so who who uses customer? So clients is, um, and consumers are the consumer, most I'm consumer sorry, right. are the most common, and so our masters levels have the the clients themselves. Okay. Um, we have the Seacoast Consumer Alliance, which is a peer-run organization that okay. we work with. So I think that, that that is the more common term when they're in a receiving treatment from a non-prescriber. I but see. they all refer to themselves with the doctor as, as a patient. As patient. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think so, that's just a legacy term for in yeah. our healthcare universe. Sure. Sure. So kind of one last question from your CV, and, and, and that was, uh, and, and you've kind of mentioned this, this you have a passion for policy. And uh, one of the things you said was um, you advocate for legislative and financial support at the local and state levels. What issues in mental health are you focused on? Uh, who are you working with on those? And, and how do you go about being an advocate? Oh, you're a pain in the neck. Oh. <laughs> I think, so for, for mental health services in New Hampshire, we have for many, many years been underfunded, okay. um, but asked to do more and more and more. And so one of the things that I was able to do, afforded the opportunity to do, was in 2006, from 2006 to 2008, work with a multi-stakeholder group to craft a plan. We used to be number one in the country, and we reached a pinnacle, and then the funding started to erode, and we recognized at that point we needed to do something. And we modeled it in, as a 10-year plan based on the university system's 10-year plans for capital improvements, thinking you really need to get the legislature to commit to understanding it didn't take us a year to get here. It's not going to take a year to fix this. And the state's strategy for restoration was published in 2008. Unfortunately, it was published in, sep in September. There was a press conference. And a month or so later, we really became aware that we were in the worst recession ever. But I continued along with my peers in the other centers to be really vocal about the need to not let the plan fall by the wayside and had to learn this was a new skill for me was learning how to interact with legislators, how learning a lot more about how our state government works, which is fascinating, and the impact that an individual can have. We have 400 House members. I mean, we have the seventh largest government in the world. Right. And so if you have an issue, chances are there is someone within a stone's throw who's in the legislature, and you can talk with them. They don't have to have the same party affiliation that you do. You just need to find a common area of interest or a reason for them to want to support your, your issue. And that often crosses party lines. I tend to not want share with anyone because I work with whoever I need to work with. For me, it's really about making sure that we have a system that can meet people's needs. We don't currently have that, um, but there's a settlement in place now because there's been a lawsuit. Um, and this is the Community Services Settlement, settlement Agreement. agreement. But understanding that just because something gets put in the budget or just because there's a settlement agreement doesn't mean that it happens. It means that you have to continue to, whether it's writing op-eds or talking to anyone that you can talk to so that they'll listen to make sure that 
the issues that you feel most passionate about aren't forgotten. There are so many things out there that people can focus on, both legislatively and from donor perspective or advocacy perspective that you have to find a way without being too annoying to, to help people understand why it matters. Okay. What was the Community Services Settlement Agreement and how does it affect Seacoast? So the 10-year plan was published and then it didn't happen and services continued, as a matter of fact, to erode and we published on an annual basis a little list. Here are the things we said that we would do and here's where we really are now. And we weren't the only ones who noticed that. The Disability Rights Center in New Hampshire who focuses on assuring that the needs of persons with disabilities are met and their rights aren't violated, felt that our state was not doing enough to make community-based services available, which is a, a violation of something called the Olmstead Act, and they filed a lawsuit. The Federal Department of Justice enjoined that and agreed with them, and ultimately in February of 2014, a settlement was implemented that really lays out uh, for adult services, not for children's services, specific things that our state needs to do. And so some of those that impacted us are that they needed to assure that there were assertive community treatment teams in every region of the state. So we, through the settlement, have added that service. They needed to make sure that uh, every center had an evidence-based supported employment service, which we had, but now we are held to a higher level of accountability for increasing penetration rate. So that's another area where we've seen a change. Some of the things that won't affect us directly yet include the development of some housing options, which they haven't done. Those were in the budget and didn't happen. I'm not quite sure where that is. But mobile crisis response units, those will happen in larger, more, for lack of a better term, for New Hampshire, urban areas. Not that we have any truly urban, urban areas, but Concord will be the first uh, region to have one of those. Uh, that really helps to bring crisis teams out to someone in crisis rather than having them have to go into the emergency room. Okay. How has mental health changed over your close to 30 years in the field now? I know. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> How has it changed, for better or worse? From, uh, and both, I, probably. I think oh. both. Okay. I think that the treatment options are better, both in terms of improved pharmaceuticals, the the side effects that you saw um, with some of the older antipsychotics, the newer atypical antipsychotics, they, they have not eliminated, but some of the things where you would see people with visible tremors that were related to the tardive dyskinesia, things that can be permanent, we see much less of that. There are other side effects from the atypical antipsychotics that are weight gain that lead to um, issues with diabetes and cardiac issues, and so we're working with health programs like In Shape and Healthy Choices, Healthy Changes to help mitigate those issues, but the medications are better as far as managing their symptoms. We have more evidence-based practices, so we have research-supported uh, models of care, so the assertive community treatment team and evidence-based supported employ employment are two of those. And I think that the staff get outstanding training, that there's really a lot more available to people who really want to hone their craft. The electronic health records help you to manage a case better so that you really know, and everyone else who's treating that person uh, within the center has an ability to know what's happening with a case that they share. And I think that those are huge advantages. Disadvantages are 
that the funding has not been adequate to support the services. The paperwork and documentation is burdensome, more burdensome for our provider type than for others because the state determines what we have to do for paperwork. And some of the policy challenges that, that make the work really difficult, like the nurse practitioners not being able to sign a treatment plan or a person with Medicare. I have a therapist who's a licensed clinical mental health counselor. He's been here for probably 30 years or so. He cannot provide a service to a client with Medicare and have us bill for it unless there's a physician in the building. The physician doesn't have to know that he's doing this service, but Just the physician has to be in the, building. Be in the building. How so big can the building be? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it has, has to be, be the considered same the same office suite. So, <laughs> okay. like, we own oh, okay. the building right, next so door. It, right. it, there That's are limitations. Okay. That's oh. not okay. All right. right. Okay. Um, and so those are things that, though we advocate, and I'm looking somewhere in a federal building in a long, dark hallway, is the person who can fix that for me. I am sure that when they created those rules, there was a reason. Someone had a reason for it. I don't think that that reason exists, and relieving some of those burdens would make it the work more efficient and, um, and more cost-effective. Okay. How has Seacoast changed during your tenure? Oh, I think fiscally we're more stable. We certainly, uh, not that there aren't always going to be struggles, but our bills are paid <laughs> when they need thing. to be paid. And that wasn't always the case. We, so that's been important because I think that brings a level of stability to the organization that really allows the clinical work to be more productive. So with the financial stability we've been able, and which can change in a heartbeat, but we've been able to recruit better staff. When, when people see your organization as being one where now 52 years old, so we have a, a long-standing history, it's easier to recruit people. Um, we've been able to, not that our salaries are competitive with the private for-profit universe, but within our field, I think we've been able to be competitive and that makes a difference because it's your staff who really are your organization in, yeah, right. in a service industry. Right. Let me just close on two questions that are relevant to young people coming in, potentially coming into the field. One would be, uh, how important are professional associations for your personal development? And uh, if, if they are, which professional associations do you belong to? So it's changed over time. Okay. Not how important they are, but which ones I belong to. When I was earlier in my career, I belonged to an organization called the National Association of Reimbursement Officers, and it was both state and community mental health center reimbursement people from across the country and really learning from, so how do you deal with this Medicare rule? And really you can access funds this way and bring it back to your uh -huh. state. And Valuable it's a great yeah. learning opportunity. Okay. Um, in my current role, I am connected to the National Council for Community Behavioral Health, which again, provides lots of resources for education and discussion and now that, which this is new in my terms of long tenure of career, having the ability to have listservs and online chats. We didn't have that, you know, in the beginning of my career. So that you have resources and, and peers who are available from all over the country who can help you to try to, if you have a challenge and you think someone else may have the answer or may have solved it, that you have someone that you can outreach for that. Nice. Is this something that a young person who's interested in mental health should be looking at? Is that an organization, or is that an organization so for people who so are So I think that there are, are some lucky. individual, that's, 
I send people from different levels to, to participate in the webinars so that I think that anyone coming in can look at that website and see if there are different trainings that are available to them. So it can be a resource to all levels. And they structure it that way. The National Council has really grown in the last eight to 10 years to, to provide both executive level and clinical level relevant trainings and support. Okay, uh, and closing question. What advice would you have for someone who's thinking about going into healthcare administration today, and in particular if they're interested in uh, mental health? What education should they pursue? What kind of jobs should they be looking for? I think that you can come at it from lots of different educational backgrounds, like myself, you know, thinking that I was going to be going down a clinical path. But one of the most important things is to understand that when you're entering the workforce, you're entering it and it's likely going to be an entry-level position and not to be disappointed in that. It, it, that provides an opportunity. So you may come in um, as someone who works in our intake and admissions department where you're taking phone calls and helping to determine um, where to schedule someone, who to schedule them with, or sitting with them and doing the paperwork. But within that environment, it's a learning opportunity both in terms of your actual day-to-day -day skills, but also the access that you have to other people who can help point you and guide you and mentor you for further development. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. I appreciate, I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.